Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Helix and Gene Medical Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Baluch, with my buddy, John DeOlimpio. What's up? And today, we have a very special guest. Uh, she's from Georgia. Her name is Elizabeth Board, Dr. Elizabeth Board. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Board was the second medical director in Georgia to become board certified by the Institute of, for Functional Medicine. She also is the founder of Atlanta Functional Medicine, located in Alpharetta, Georgia. Dr. Board holds board certifications in pain management and anesthesiology and has completed the Helms course in acupuncture and is neuroendoimmune certified. Did I say that correctly? Perfect. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Board. It's great to have you on board. Welcome. We're very excited to have you here. So, Dr. Board, just, um, and this is a very obviously impressive uh, resume to start. I just wanted to kind of get started by asking you about a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your journey, how you came to be a doctor, how you became to be a functional medicine practitioner, and uh, where this all started from. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, it's wonderful to talk about this journey because journeys can be quite twisted and, you know, turn us in lots of different uh, places. I originally wanted to be a pilot. And so I went to the wow. Air Force Academy and I wanted very much to fly. But while I was there, I passed out quite a few times. And huh. so I lost my pilot qualification. So I ended up, go which was a big, oh, I couldn't even look at an airplane fly overhead. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. the thing about it is I did great pulling G's with mm -hmm. my dad flying. He did acrobatics. I never wanted to, to land. And he would stay up and say, we're going to have to land because I'm getting a little woozy. But I could <laughs> handle all that. But there was something that was causing me to pass out. And it wasn't even during basic training. It wasn't during the assault course or the obstacle course. But I, it was after certain um, sort of GI symptoms that I had. Huh. So after getting tested and no one really knowing what was going on, I went ahead and went to Emory Medical School um, as a backup choice to being a pilot. And it was during my time as a um, actually, in my anesthesia residency, I realized that when, as an anesthetic, uh, when we're delivering an anesthetic to someone who's having bowel surgery, we actually, uh, surgeons have to touch the bowel to make sure that the bowel doesn't have any leaks. Mm. And so all that touching of the bowel stimulates the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve is the nerve that controls keeping our heart rate kind of slow. It's our digestion. It's what keeps us calm. It's the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's the calm part. Well, it suddenly occurred to me that every time I ever passed out, I usually had a lot of gastric distension, a lot of, you know, distension of my stomach. Mm. And I also had a lot of, uh, I would always have like a bradycardia, like I could feel my pulse slowing right before I'd pass out. And that made a lot of sense to me because as an anesthesiologist, we always told the surgeon, you need to let go of the bowel, let the heart rate recover. You're stimulating that vagus nerve too much. So I thought, you know, I think that me passing out, in every case, it was related to a lot of gastric distension. What well, would be years later when I became a functional medicine practitioner that I put two and two together, and what was happening is I was, I was basically experiencing SIBO. So SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, which creates a lot of gas in the small intestine particularly. And, it, and when you have that much gas, it stimulates the vagus nerve. Remember the nerve that slows yeah, everything yeah, down, sure. and my heart rate would drop. And so I found that if I changed my diet, that I could eliminate those episodes. And so now I haven't passed out in, um, well, since I started doing functional medicine. That's amazing. So wow. it, it absolutely. And so it, it kind of shows in a way how part of how I fell in love with functional medicine, because functional medicine is basically a, a format that allows us to find answers to conditions that patients have that don't have a name yet. So SIBO, you know, technically didn't exist, right, back yeah. in 1984 when I was at the Air Force Academy. It didn't exist. And it didn't exist when I was um, going through my residency and passing out from time to time. It didn't exist. Well, actually, it did exist. It just didn't have a name. Right. It wasn't and so, Right. It's just like I always tell people when, when I have patients come in and they say, I have these symptoms and I've seen the doctor and no one, they've done lots of lab work and no one knows what's wrong and they say that I'm perfectly fine and there's nothing wrong with me. I always look at them and say, it's okay. Because 200 years ago, we were burning people at the stake because they had epilepsy. It wasn't right. that long ago. Yeah. yeah. We, we didn't know what epilepsy was and so we couldn't explain it. And it now we're ignoring patients. Patients that are hurting, patients that have symptoms, 
and it's not the doctor's fault. It's because we, we don't know what the diagnosis is. And that's one of the problems in uh, how we teach our, our young doctors now is we teach them. And again, I don't blame anyone because I went through conventional medicine. This is how I was taught at a fantastic medical school, um, Emory. Well, and, this is just new. Yeah. It's not like, you know, it's not, it's, no one's to blame. It's like, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not it's to blame new and, doctors. It, and it shows just how uh, connected the body is. Absolutely. And but, how but, it's, it really works as one whole system of many different parts. But nobody can blame the doctors. You, can, no, you can't. Yeah. You know, blame the doctors. for for things that they weren't taught or things that weren't discovered yet. You know, I, I, everything, including the medical field, is is evolving. You know, every single day. And I believe functional medicine is an evolution for a lot of MDs. Um, it's just a matter of getting their proper mindset to start. You know, viewing it from that lens instead of the traditional way they've been taught all, all the time. Well, it's it's like the lack of evidence doesn't mean that it's lacking evidence. We just haven't found it yet. Right? Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. And so I love it. It's, it's that part of it is really exciting. It really is exciting. And what you guys are doing and what a lot of other people are doing is they're exposing more and more physicians to not feel that they have to live inside this box exactly. where we, we have symptoms and our job is to find a diagnosis. Okay. And then from that diagnosis, we have an algorithm, which is almost like a recipe that says we're going to do a, B and C, or if it's this way, we'll do C, D and E. But mm. it frees us up to say the the conventional diagnosis and algorithm isn't working for this patient. So I need to start digging deeper, uh, going further back into the history, maybe from the time when the, the individual was actually conceived, looking at what was happening to mom all the way through to the point in their life where they're having symptoms. It's truly detective the, work. Uh, absolutely. And I, I will tell uh, my patients many times, I always say, have you watched CSI? Have you watched <laughs> a detective story? That's what we're like the first 24 hours. Yeah. We're, we're not going to find the answer looking at looking at the murder weapon and the individual on the ground. We've got to go a day, two days, three days, three weeks, four weeks. We got to go from the very beginning. Well, and that's exactly it, right? And 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 sorry to cut you off, but you know, you're no. you're, you're you're talking about such an interesting but yet so important vital point. You see, traditional medicine has always been like you said, symptom, okay? And when the symptom shows, you figure out and apply different things for the symptom. But this really just opens the eyes and says, "Hey, Maybe this doesn't show up on a blood work. Maybe this doesn't show up on the traditional tests that we've had in the past. You have to dig deeper and put, you know, the pieces of the puzzle together. And that's what the human body is. It allows you to be inquisitive about things. Oh, absolutely. And to learn every day from a, from my patients and and to get me to dive into the research. I didn't, when I was practicing anesthesia, which I loved, anesthesia is, very, is to me kind of fun and pretty easy. Um, yeah, although I always tried to tailor it and kind of make it uh, every case a little different, you know, and when I taught anesthesia, I would teach my residents to do treat each patient as an individual, find out what their concerns are and tailor the anesthetic. Don't do the same anesthetic for the same person, tailor it to the patient's needs and their history and everything else. It'll be more interesting for you in the long run. But this kind of practice really gets me back into the literature because I have to, I have patients uh, with new conditions or conditions, like we said, that don't have a name. I have to get into the literature to find out what are the solutions for these particular situations? And it's, it's that part's really exciting. So what's the what's like one of the conditions that you've seen through functional medicine and what you've done through functional medicine that you know you had never seen in the traditional field of just being a regular MD? Well, I mean, I'll go back to that whole notion of SIBO. So I have. Um, I'm thinking. I'll just give you a brief scenario of a patient that I had. Yeah. This uh, was a uh, young man who was a college scholarship you know he has he had a college scholarship for his athletics so he was a very athletic young man mm -hmm. went to a very good school went on his trip and got a gastrointestinal infection and it was from that point forward that he was never the same now he was having a lot of gi symptoms losing a lot of weight they put him on adhd medicine they put him on uh, a benzodiazepine for anxiety they put him on um, an antidepressant they put him on antipsychotic so he was on four psychotropic drugs and he was sent, uh, he would continue to have these gastrointestinal symptoms. So he would go to the ER. He had had literally, I had to list every single radiologic study he did. He had an upper endoscopy. He had a barium swallow. He had a CT scan. He had an MRI. He had everything that could have been done. I mean, this shows you that the medical community was trying to help this young athlete sure. who was now wasting away and now could not even go to college anymore. And if we went back and just asked, you know, his mom came with me. I looked at his mom and I said, 
did he was he like this before? I mean, what was he like? Tell me what it was he was like when he was young. He didn't have symptoms of ADHD. He didn't have symptoms of depression. He didn't have symptoms of anxiety. And he was a very good student. When did things change? And that's when he looked at me and said, after this trip I took. Well, that is a common scenario for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is what SIBO is. And that's when the bacteria that are supposed to be in the colon have grown to such high levels in the small intestine, which for our listeners is the beginning of the intestine. You have the esophagus, where you have, well, you have your mouth, you have your esophagus, then you have your stomach, and then the very next section is this small intestine. And the small intestine is quite long with lots of surface area, and that's the part of the stomach or the GI tract that allows us to absorb our nutrients and our protein. And it's at that point where we break everything down so that it's small enough that we can absorb it. That's a really important part, important part yeah. of the gastrointestinal system, super important. And so you can imagine if this part of his body was dysfunctional, uh, then he's not going to absorb what he needs. How can you make neurotransmitters? Neurotransmitters are made from amino acids, which right. are the building blocks of proteins. So think of a protein that you might eat and think about how it gets broken down into its absolute little tiny individual amino acid. Those little amino acids are the building blocks for neurotransmitters. How do we expect our body to make neurotransmitters when we can't absorb them? And that's one of the side effects of having small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The small intestine no longer allows us to absorb what we need. So this young man was now having to lose everything. And what we did for him is I said, you know, from your history and from what your mom's told me, I think you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We put him on a, a diet and um, it's a diet that eliminates those foods that sort of promote or encourage those bacteria to grow. And we mm. let him eat foods that don't really encourage uh, that bacteria to grow. So he was able to eat. And then we started him on some uh, botanicals, which you can also use antibiotics, but we started him on a regimen. And I went ahead and did the test for him because I felt like it was real important to mom and to him, having seen so many doctors, that we have a test that finally shows them, yes, this is really what's going on. And of course, while we might have predicted that his SIBO test was grossly, grossly abnormal, and he did have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, what like was the catalyst for this? Like, what caused the bacteria to overgrow to that extent? Just the infection, right? In, in his case, we would assume that it is the infection. Yeah. Mm. But it's a great question because one of the things that can uh, affect the body's ability to keep bacterial levels low is acid. So when your mm. stomach produces acid, you create a milieu that's not favorable for the growth of bacteria. And what do so many people in the United States take now? So many people take PPIs, PPI, proton PPIs, pump yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Or they, and in the old days, we used to take Tums, right? And Rolades, right? Yeah, yeah. And we took those a few times. But, but that's a little bit more, when you're talking about a, a proton pump inhibitor, you're talking about something that is literally shutting down the function of something that's been existing in the human body and allows us to absorb the nutrients we have to live since time began. So I'm not down on PPIs when I have somebody who has a bleeding ulcer. That right. could be life-saving, but not for long-term usage. And most gastroenterologists um, are going to tell you you don't want to be on a PPI for long-term. And I do want to say to our listeners out there, if you are using a PPI, you know, if you're having a lot of gas and bloating – or if the PPI is not really working very well, you might want to see, um, you know, question your gastroenterologist or maybe go see a functional medicine doctor and get tested and see if maybe you're setting yourself up for SIBO. But what was so beautiful about this young man is I, one of the tenets of functional medicine is that we care about organ preservation. We don't just give people right, NSAIDs right. and say, your pain's better next, your pain's better. Yeah. We care about what we do. Mm. We're trying to look at the big picture. We're trying to be proactive. We're looking at what I call the long game. We're not just looking at get rid of the symptom today. We want to see what the long game. We're looking at past. We're looking at current. We're looking at future. And so one of the things that we do when we treat SIBO in our practice is we always want to look at the liver enzymes. If I'm killing a lot of bacteria, that's a lot of toxins for my liver to have to clean up. And so we had him come back at six weeks to check his liver enzymes because I wanted to make for sure that I wasn't hurting this young man. When he came back in to get his blood work, I, re I barely recognized him. He had a big smile on his face. He'd gained about 20 pounds. He looked like a different guy. The guy's very tall and he had gotten very, very thin. Again, he wasn't able to absorb the nutrients he needed. He wasn't able to absorb the amino acid he needed to build the neurotransmitters that gives him uh, dopamine, which makes us feel good, 
serotonin, which makes us feel calm and satiated and satisfied, or norepinephrine to help us feel focused. So instead so, of pumping him full of drugs, you found the root cause of the issue and you saved the kid's life and changed him and his parents' life for the rest of their life. Exactly, and he was able to <laughs> give me up all <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, it, it's never me. I always tell the patient that, I always say, look how powerful your body is. Right. Look how powerful it is. And you get 100% of the credit because you did the work. You were willing to change your diet. You but were it took someone to like you to diagnose that exactly. in a way beyond just say, oh, we'll put him on PPIs or we'll, we'll, we'll give him some benzos or this or that or this or that. You got to the root cause of the problem, and that is such a blessing, I'm sure, for so many people who have someone that is intelligent who can diagnose a problem in that inquisitive kind of way, you know, that promotes true healing. Yeah. Well, um, we, we want to, in functional medicine, we really want our functional medicine colleagues to stay um, humble and open. When I think about mm. humility, I think of openness. So while that case went really well, sometimes we have phenomenal cases that uh, I feel certainly going to go work well, and they don't always work out. But, you know, um, the majority of the time, I would say 99% of the time when I have a functional medicine patient, when they do what we ask them to do, and that they stay on the plan, something always gets better. Mm. It always gets better. And I've had a lot of patients where virtually all of their symptoms got better, which is pretty amazing. But it has so much to do with the doctor as teacher, because if the doctor doesn't, they can't get the point across to the patient how important it is to change the diet, how important it is for them to walk every day, or to maybe change their work schedule so that stress isn't, you know, damaging so many different interconnected pieces of their body, like you guys have just said, you know, the body's so connected. Mm. Stress affects almost every system in our body when it's when it's excessive. Well, and yeah. Yeah, well, well, that's just it, right? I mean, like one of the things that we do up here is, you know, preventative health care. I mean, you mm -hmm. hit it on the head, you know, we, we look at, you know, gut health, we look at, you know, the organs. I mean, one of the main things that I think is so overlooked is, you know, the, the, the health of your organs, not just how they function individually, but the how they function as one unit utilizing each other throughout your system and i think it's something that you know a lot of times it's it, over time and a lot of it hasn't been paid a lot of close attention to it's just been well i shouldn't say that we pay a lot of we pay close attention to figuring out if there's something wrong and like you said showing seeing the symptom and fixing it but mm -hmm. you know understanding the proper nutrition aspect of how you can cleanse your organs through proper nutrition i mean that right there is golden and you know even someone like myself I've been in the fitness industry in for 20 years up until recently where I really started diving into this to create what we're doing I really didn't understand organ health to mm -hmm. that deep of an extent mm -hmm. at all and it and it's mind-boggling to me so I'm just like how is the average person supposed to understand this like we need to have more of this kind of conversation and really a, a lot more of a focus on organ health as a whole because you can prevent everything by getting your organs right through nutrition. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you're bringing up nutrition because um, like I was talking about, uh, we were kind of discussing ahead of time. I was just learning this recently that they're um, part of the whole chronic pain issue that we're, and I do, I'm going to switch over to that just a little bit because I think organs are, are very important and they go into how do we keep our organs healthy? Well, one of the things is we go back to eating the foods that, we've been eating since time began mm. instead of the food that we call food, which isn't real food. And let me go back to what I would mean by that. We know that human beings have been here for, we believe now 300,000 years because they found a skull in Africa. These say 250, but now we think homo sapiens have been here as long, as long as 300,000 years. That's and incredible. our DNA has co-evolved, not with mechanization recently, it went around, right? The industrial revolution is not that old. Yeah. Our DNA co-evolved with the plants and animals around us, okay? Mm. And the plants and animals that were not changed by genetic modification, that were not being treated with pesticides, that were not being treated with plastics and chemicals. So our DNA over all that time became more and more and more and more fine-tuned to allow us to survive the harshest conditions without modern medicine, without the scientific thought and a placebo-controlled blinded study. It was, it was, think about what we did. And when you think about pain, getting That's back to pain. It, it, absolutely. And think about, and I'll give you a little thought. 
the first sound that we utter as a human being is a cry. Right. So pain is not something that has to be squashed at every single turn. I mean, pain is there to let us know we're here. Yeah, we, annou- right. we announce we're here with a cry, okay? And women, you know, give birth. It, I, I think there are some women that might be able to give birth without much pain. I've heard <laughs> right. about it. They just, yeah. I, I've, I've met lucky. women that say, I don't want any of the other women to know, but you know, it yeah. didn't really hurt that much when I gave birth. Yeah. Uh, but most women have some type of pain, which they actually create life with. So instead of always running from pain and covering up, sometimes we have to shake hands with the pain and say, what is this pain teaching me? And I believe, when you think about it, that if we've co-evolved over years with the environment that we've lived within, with the plants and animals around us, that the nutrients that we eat and what have you, then there must be something outside of the world that we take in that interacts with our physiology that allows us to combat and handle pain. If it were not true, how could we have survived 300,000 years? That's because a it, very, I mean, very th- good point, yeah. Yeah, so then when you, when you get that concept in your mind, then it becomes interesting. You wanna roll up your sleeves and say, let me dig into the literature and find out about these nutrients. What can they do for me? Yeah, because they've been context. around longer than Oxycontin. <laughs> Guarantee. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's a great shift in context. And, you know, in what you said, there's such a deep spiritual element to what you're talking about, you know, and, you know, and, and, and you aided on talking about the vagus nerve earlier as well. And, you know, that's something that also in spirituality and the shamans and, you know, different, you know, spiritual leaders have been talking about for years about how the chakras light up. And that's essentially what the name vagus nerve is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, this whole notion of of pain when you first enter and learning how to deal with it, you know, and accepting that it's a part of what makes us feel alive, you know, that's very, I got to give it to you. That's a very deep, you know, spiritual avenue of looking at things. And I, I think that's what also helps the functional medicine aspect connect holistic medicine to traditional medicine. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting yeah. how, you know, through our evolution, you know, um, back when, <laughs> Mod- modern day the pain the pains of modern day and the stressors of modern day living are entirely different than the stressors of what our ancestors had to go through thousands of years ago yeah. so <laughs> things have changed in a way in that respect too well elizabeth you said something really interesting and i want to ask you about this you know you 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 alluded to the point that you know before all of this terrible you know, external environmental things that, uh, you know, uh, our DNA was formed through, you know, essentially everything around us with nature, right? So, so would you say that in today's toxic environment that the majority of people live in, um, in, you know, uh, all of these uh, high fructose corn syrup foods for kids and, you know, these the sugar addicts that, you know, we see on a daily basis and the environment that's caused, would you say that that is now actually having an adverse effect and it's messing up our DNA and our evolution as we move forward? I think that if we, you know, to change DNA, it's going to take a long time. Sure. So we, we, it would, we wouldn't be able to see the repercussions, um, for you know, couple for another hundred years. years. Yeah. But, right? yeah. so, and, and I'm not going to be around. And I don't no, think no. Right. But, um, but, but you know what's so cool is this brings us right back to what you first started when I kind of went off topic a little bit, which is about organ preservation. Yes. So those very uh, industrialized types of, and I'm going to put quotes around food because I don't really, it's really not food. Um, things like high fructose corn syrup. Um, all the high carbohydrate, low fat foods that we eat that are mechanized or not even real food. What's happening today is when you think about organ preservation is children are having liver transplants. Now, now why would a child need a liver transplant from fatty liver? I mean, that's, that's showing you what's happening when our DNA, which was brought up, designed, tested, tried, and taught by the world around us for 200 300,000 years, is now interfacing with mechanized food. The organs can't handle it. Hmm. And these children, children are having to be placed on cholesterol medication. Hmm. Why? Because they want to protect the organs of the endothelium of our vessels, right? So we don't have plaques, unstable plaques. Going to the organs, we're talking about the liver, the liver which does so much work for the body, keeps the body clean, keeps, detoxes the body, makes 
essential uh, molecules that we have for clotting, they're just essential to life, we're having to transplant the liver in 11-year-olds. It doesn't make sense at all. We're seeing children getting pregnant, uh, I'm sorry, we're, are having periods at a much earlier age before they're really designed yeah, to have yeah. babies, right? Because we think the estrogen mimics in our plastics are accelerating uh, menarche in our, our young girls. And now there's a big push that uh, male infertility is becoming a problem for the, the same similar reason in the sense that a lot of the plastics and BPI, BPA and um, uh, PCBs are affecting male fertility. So going to your point, the world that we live in is actually now damaging the organs. And that's where when we think one of the tenets and one of the principles of functional medicine is organ preservation and yeah. looking to the organ, looking to the organ as messenger of what's happening with the system. And we lose that when as physicians, unfortunately, in our specialties, we focus in. I mean, as a pain management doctor, I can tell you my patient came in. I trained at Stanford. Fantastic place to train. And my patient would come in with pain. And I, all I wanted to do was to remove that patient's pain. And I was very anti-opiate at the time. This was back in 2001, 2002. Mm -hmm. So I tried very hard not to prescribe opiate. So of course, I'm going to give them an NSAID. But what is that NSAID going to do to that patient's kidneys? So in my best and most caring way, I wasn't looking at organ preservation. I was dealing with the symptom at the time. And we now know that some of the treatments that you know, we gave back then Vioxx and Bextra, they all played havoc in the cardiovascular system and actually led to more heart attacks. So wow. we have to be, you know, think about that, you know, and as a specialist, um, we need specialists. I send my patients to specialists all the time because I want their expert opinion on this area. But you know what we need? We need specialized generalists, mm. right? We yeah. need people that are are focused on how the body is coordinated and connected. We need connectedologists. We need people that can look at how we can synthesize the information and come up with a long-term plan for an individual. Um, I do think medications play a fabulous role, but I think of them as a bridge, a bridge from a dysfunctional point in an individual's life to get them kind of over, like a bridge, right? Get them over yeah, the troubled right. waters, get them to cross the troubled waters and then eventually get them off the bridge, get them off the drug and get them, you know, frolicking, frolicking happy on the other side, you know, yeah. and practicing without drugs. And I'll tell you in our practice, uh, when I first started practicing functional medicine, I had a, a woman who was about 78 or 79 and she came up to the front desk to check out and she cheers her, or she brings both arms up and she cheers. She says, I'm on no medications and I'm 78 or whatever. Oh. And it was my first experience understanding you know, about, about this will to survive, you know, kind of on our own, on our own, uh, recognizance, if you will, and not yeah. being dependent on drugs. No, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot, you know, like I, I'm somebody who meditates 20 minutes every single morning. I've been doing it for 20 years and that mental control. And a lot of what I do through my meditation is, you know, envision my body health, I have organs, cleaning things out. And, you know, I do attribute a whole lot of that energetic creation to my mindset and to that willingness. And I do believe you do set off certain neurotransmitters that really go inside the body and function on themselves naturally. Now you combine that with proper food and exercise and you cleanse at, you know, important times throughout life that's necessary. You know, I think you're putting yourself at a very, very good rate to have a long health span along with your lifespan. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, let's go back to what I, I wanted to bring this up. And this is a great time to bring this up because you just talked about meditation. See, in our lives now, we don't have the ability to meditate regularly. I mean, we, we could. We have to incorporate it. We have to add it in. Yeah, it has but, to know, become something right, like brushing has, teeth. Yeah, we have to, like, make a, you yes. know, put it in our schedule. Yes. But in the old days, what did we do? All we, did. We, would, we were hoeing the field, right? Yeah. We were gathering berries. That was a meditation. Yeah, absolutely. Our mind. Yeah, I mean, a I tell samurai. You, you know, when I'm upset, I love to do laundry. Yeah, same. I, <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> I wash dishes. <laughs> Calms me down. Because it's brainless. You know, the tiger isn't yeah. chasing me while I'm folding towels. That's right. You know, I can relax. I remember a time in my life when, you know, I tend to be a, 
I mean, I'm not overweight by any means because I work very, very hard at, and I practice functional medicine and I practice what I preach. And if you practice what you preach, you're not going to get overweight when you let, let go of certain foods and things like that. That's right. But in my life, exactly prior to functional medicine, um, I always struggled with my weight, terrible sugar addiction, really struggled with my weight really hard. And I remember going through a period of my life when I became quite thin and I didn't understand why I was like, why am I so thin? I I almost thought I had cancer Mm -hmm. and I did what I used to do when I was heavy. I wrote down everything I ate and I noticed I was only eating about 700 calories a day. What I was doing during that brief six months of my life is I was doing research and I was working with rats and I was studying the rats and I was doing all these cool research and I won't even go into the gory things I did with them, but you know, (laughs) uh, I don't want to get our reviewers upset, but um, I was very loving and kind to them and talked to them and stuff. Horrible things we did for first for science. Right. (laughs) Right. And we did anesthetize them. So I anesthetized everything we did, but you know, it was such a relaxing, fascinating thing that was not stressful that I didn't overeat. And, um, I just want to point out many times when I was working in that lab, it was almost meditative, right? Mm. Because it was relaxing and we've, we've stopped doing that in our lives. And I think that's, that's part of when I, when I go back to say, what was it about the world before that allowed us to handle and manage pain without opiates? I mean, think about this for a minute. The early settlers of the United States, many of them were Puritans, so they didn't drink alcohol because many people say, well, people got through pain in the old days because they drank a lot. That's true. I'm sure a lot of people did drink a lot. But many people were teetotalers, right? You had mm. the Mormons, you had the Puritans. Yeah. They Most of them did not drink. And yet they crossed this great country from one end to the other. Most of us upset about sitting in a car ride for a couple of hours. Oh, my back is killing me. Oh, my God, I get out and walk around. Imagine sitting on a wagon train or a horse or walking. How do we do that without getting liquored up or taking opiates? And again, it's the interaction with the environment around us, the food that we ate, the natural healthy food that we ate. And then you brought up a big point, and that is meditation. We were calm. We were we were in touch with nature. We were meditating while we were walking or while we were carrying things. We're meditating. And the other thing that we had is we had connection to family. We had connection to right. a greater purpose. And I think that's something that we're at risk for now with the um, computer uh, generation with kids that are on their iPhones. I was just interviewing a kid that came in my office recently and asked him about friends. I mean, and I was asking him who his friends were and the dad pointed to him, the friends you play video games with, name some of them. And I'm thinking, you know, that's, think about the things that we did for 200,000 years that helped us. We've, we can't quit doing those. I think in a way so, we've progressed as a society, but we've, we've also uh, regressed as a society in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. we've, we've progressed technologically. Correct. We've regressed internally. Correct. That's, you know, that, Correct. That, that's, it's, it, uh, you see it every day. I have one question, though, in terms of yeah. uh, where, do you, where do you see opioids being used in the grand scheme of things? Uh, I'm sure you see the use of them in some cases. I'm sure of like intractable pain, cancer pain. Where do you see the use of opioids? I think that opioids in patients that have um, when you think about a tumor, a tumor is growth con- growth without breaks, right? I mean, it's growth of tissue that's out of control. It's bumping into other tissues. It's creating a lot of pain. Anytime the tissues grow or expand, mm. suddenly it's painful, whether it's a bruise, whether it's um, you know a tumor, whether it's gastric distension. I mean, when tissues expand rapidly, they create pain, right? And that's a signal to us to let us know, hey, something's going on over here. But cancer doesn't pay a attention to growth signal. So it's an abnormal growth. And I think in that case, we, especially if the patient is um, at risk for uh, incurable cancer, I think that's a very compassionate place for Mm. opiates. But there are other things that can happen. And I used, when I was at Stanford, I lectured on this quite a bit. Sometimes there are nerve blocks that we can do that will blunt the pain so significantly that the individual doesn't have to be on very many opiates. And then that way they can live the last few months of their life communicating with their loved ones. Because one of the problems with opiates, even in cancer pain, is that the brain becomes so fogged, so confused. And the sense, the risk for uh, hyperalgesia, which is uh, when when even simple things start to hurt, hyper meaning too much, algesia being pain. Mm. So you put somebody on an opiate and then you bump into them and it hurts. Okay, you don't. That's not what we want when we're spending our last three to six months with the people that we love. Right. Because I can remember my aunt. You know, when she had stomach cancer, you couldn't really hug her because everything hurt her, and um, that's that's not really our goal. So right. I do think opiates are 
are, can be critical because we should not allow our loved ones to suffer. But at the same time, if we can continue to be curious and investigative about ways of decreasing pain, even if it's a nerve block, even if it's a permanent nerve block where you damage the nerve permanently because a person is, you know, spending the last few months on lo- of life on the earth, and I've done some of those nerve blocks and had the loved ones come up to me and say, thank you so much because my loved one now doesn't hurt and I can talk to them. I can commune with them. They can walk now because their feet aren't swollen uh, because they're on so much morphine. I mean, these are actual cases of patients that we've had. So, so just to, just to, just to, just to hit on something here, you know, John asked you about where you see the proper usage of opiates, and you talked about, you know, almost a near death last couple of months <laughs> being a possibility of usage right. for for such a drug. And here we have a opioid epidemic in young kids that are dying left and right because they're just being given this stuff on a regular basis to treat basic things that could be prevented with everything else we just spent time talking about and then right. some so how do okay so this is where i will point the finger a little bit at the medical yeah. industry okay yeah, like, yeah that's right okay so how does this happen like how the hell did this happen i'll tell you how it happened because like, i remember the whole situation um i was a young doctor at emory very interested in pain because I lo- what I was interested in pain, the part that I was interested in is the idea that you could remove pain without opiates. To me, that fascinated me. I was reading articles on imagery. I was reading articles on, you know, simple things that would remove pain and were not opiate related. That to me, I thought, man, that's cool right there. And so when, that's what got me interested in doing my pain fellowship. But what, what was happening to pain is pain became the fifth vital sign which means that um, we were supposed to, in the hospital, ask every patient what their pain level is. And they were supposed to give us a score, usually from, from zero to 10. And then if it, this pain score was high, we were not allowed to withdraw opiates from, or withdraw pain relief, which generally was opiates, from the individual. So there was a huge push. And this was, um, and I don't have the historic data, I'm just gonna tell you from what I remember as a young resident, but this was in the 90s. I mean, this was in the mid to late 90s. and Part of that, I think, was pushed. I know some of the, actually, the chief of pain, uh, the chief of the, uh, the pain department at Emory, was someone who was found later to be working for one of the uh, opiate companies, yeah. and the, they really pushed this idea that it was unethical, that it was uh, malpractice. I mean, really, the pressure on physicians was ridiculous. And I remember that. I was a young, impressionable doctor at the time. And the pressure for for doctors to relieve pain, when I was in medical school even, before I even started residency, one of the things they taught us, and it, it stuck in my mind, was the one thing that we can promise our patients is that we can remove their pain. That's not really always true because there are some forms of pain that even opiates can't touch. Right. But um, So I kind of took that idea. I want to make sure my patients don't hurt. There's this big push, risk of lawsuit. If I don't get rid of my patient's pain, it's not the doctor's fault. And I and I hate to say it, but I think a lot of it, I, I don't know where all of that came from, but I think, let's face it, for many, many years, the number one drug in the country was OxyContin, was yeah. hydrocodone, and there was a lot of money to be made in that. Now, the problem is that physicians who are very busy, and I know because I've been one and I know how it is, in order to not have to get called, right, let me go ahead and give you 30 Oxycontin or 30 Hydrocodone because I don't want you to hurt because I don't want to get sued. Hmm. And that is the fifth vital sign. And by God, we got to get rid of pain. So let me give you all this Oxycontin. You go home. You take one. You throw up. You're like, I don't I'm not have any pain. I mean, pain's not that bad. It's not as bad as throwing up. And then you put them in your cabinet. And then your son or daughter or your neighbor's kids or someone else, the cleaning lady or someone you're selling your house. I've heard of this where people come. They go through the cabinets when they're going through a house thinking about buying it, okay? When people become addicted to opiates, it's not their fault. Their brain tells them they have to have opiates or they're going to die. And so that creates an opportunity for, for the perpetuation of opiate addiction. And we have to become much, much more responsible with these drugs because these are, these are life-threatening drugs. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, they're, I, they're I, life-threatening. I mean, and they we, literally that's are. Like saying, go ahead. Yeah, when a kid at the age of 18, you know, breaks his hand and, you know, the doctor prescribes opiates and the kid becomes hooked and doesn't know what to do, I mean, 
that kid has no chance afterwards mentally. Mm -hmm. It's very Mm -hmm. difficult for that kid to ever recover and come back to a normal life. I mean, we see this happen day to day. I personally experienced this. You know, my brother-in-law passed away of this two years ago after a 10 year struggle for this exact same thing that just took, that took place, you know, and, 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 and you see this all the time now. It's not even like, you know, it's crazy how it, it, it's getting a lot better. They're putting a lot of regulations. We mm-hmm. are moving in the right direction. I will say that. You know, enough people I think have died where, you know, yeah, they gave their <laughs> lives for this. Right. They gave their lives. Yeah. Enough people gave their lives. This was literally like are you know, it's funny. I tell I tell people in, in, in every generation there's a way that the youth die. Sometimes it's war. In in this generation it was the opioid crisis more than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. and, and, and many moms lost their kids. And you know, it, it it's now we're getting better at it, but it's crazy how this was just it's really just unfortunate like, okay that just go ahead and do it it was nuts everyone really i think has a first-hand story about it and i think mm-hmm. that is uh it's such a challenging thing because it's 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 become it beeps become prevalent and, and like sam was just mentioning everyone it, it hits home it hits close to home for i think for a lot of people mm-hmm. um but you know it, it's sort of finding that balance between when to properly prescribe opioids for people who have extreme pain versus, you know, like Sam was saying, you break your hand, you get 30 Valiums, and next thing you know, whoop, you know. Right. As an 18-year-old kid, you have yeah. no mental defense mechanism, and, you know, you have immigrant parents who love you and don't really know what's going on. You know, right. how is that kid ever supposed to recover from something like that? He has no oh chance. Zero. But, yeah. you know, and, and, and just to jump ship a little bit and, and, and get a little, like, more light on the subject, you know, so we're talking about, you know, obviously different treatments, and we got into the opiate thing, but one of the treatments that I want to talk to you about inside of functional medicine is the proper usage of supplements. You know, this mm-hmm. is something that we spoke about, um, and, you know, again, and this, this, this leads into the prevention aspect of never getting to places like opioids, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, how do you uh, differentiate? differentiate people that come into your practice patients with different supplements what do you look for what is your take on proper supplementation um this is you know obviously other than just basic nutrition well and i think getting a, new, a good nutritional history is very important um but there, the, what the research shows is there are certain supplements that absolutely have been shown to improve um pain and when i say supplements i'm, I'm talking when you think of the word supplement also think about this is something that we're adding to an individual because they're not getting it from their diet or from their environment. Okay. So I'll give you an example. If I have um, someone who works long hours in the computer, and I can see this all the time, the computer industry, they're never outside. You can just look at them and you can tell this person doesn't see the light of day. No vitamin D. And you can just, and you know that they're going to have a low vitamin D. Okay. And then the research, which is something that I do, you know, just recently reviewed all the most recent research, vitamin D in many cases has been shown to improve many different types of pain, period, okay? Mm. And um, and it has so many other benefits. It activates about 950 um, genes, and so that's ends up being about a third of our active DNA. I mean, when mm. you think about how powerful vitamin D is, I mean, it's really a hormone. Hormones have the ability to go inside the nucleus of the cell and adjust or change the blueprint. I mean, think about that's super powerful. Yeah. So vitamin D, I mean, so we can't be too surprised about it. So vitamin D, getting looking at someone like that, I will often look at someone like that, get their history. They're not on vitamin D. I've done enough testing. I know they're going to be low. So sometimes I might put somebody on vitamin D out of the gate for that. The second thing that I really want to put people on is magnesium. So Mm. it turns out that the signal from the exiting nerve to the receiving nerve, um, that signal, which is often pain, but it could be anxiety, it could be a lot of other things, is is the flow of calcium. So calcium from the terminal nerve to the receiving nerve that message is sent through calcium. It turns out that that calcium channel has an opening for magnesium. And when you put magnesium in that opening, and it's the NMDA receptor, it actually slows the flow of calcium so that it literally is a natural pain reliever. Now, it's not as powerful as Oxycontin, but right. getting someone on magnesium can many times help um, chronic pain, whether it's musculoskeletal pain, um, and it also helps them sleep. So it has a lot of other benefits. So magnesium and vitamin say, D yeah, are two things that are pretty essential. And we know in our environment we don't get a lot of vitamin D. One of the, I mean, uh, we don't get a lot of magnesium and probably not a lot of vitamin D. How do you either, figure out the dosage of magnesium in, in an individual? Like where, where, where do you start with that? 
Okay, so what I do is I ask them, do you have const- are you more con- are you the kind of person that's more constipated or do you have more diarrhea or regular or d- daily bowel movements? So if they don't have any constipation, then I start them on a magnesium that's less likely to cause uh, loose stools, and that might be magnesium aspartate, not aspartate, but magnesium aspartate, or magnesium glycinate. Okay, got it. Those now glycinate is going to have a little bit more of a bowel effect, but aspartate, which is somewhat hard to find because people are scared of it because it sounds like aspartame, but it's not aspartame. Your body makes aspartic acid. Your body, let me just say it again, your body makes aspartic acid. So if you take magnesium aspartate, you're taking something your body has seen before. If you take aspartame, you're taking something your body has never seen before and it didn't co-evolve with it. But magnesium aspartate causes the least amount of diarrhea in my experience, okay? Um, glycinate's wonderful because glycine is an amino acid that also acts as a calming neurotransmitter. So if my patient says, yeah, um, I'm interested in taking magnesium or I'm making them take magnesium because they do have chronic pain, then I'm going to give them magnesium glycinate when they have problems sleeping because now they can take it at night, get that little bonus of glycine, um, and they'll do well with that. If they start having diarrhea, we can switch them to aspartate. Are you following me so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very okay, clear. Cool. The next step would be magnesium citrate. So magnesium citrate is still well-absorbed like its sisters, um, magnesium aspartate and glycinate. Maybe not quite as well-absorbed, but, but well-absorbed. But it really helps relax the bowels a little bit in the sense that you don't get cramps, you don't get watery diarrhea, but you will have some very thorough, comfortable bowel movements and maybe some little bit, you know, softer bowel movements after that. So in my constipated patients, we just go straight to magnesium citrate. So that's how I choose the type. And there are other ones. There's serenate and tarate. There's lots of different ones. And they're touted to do different things for the brain and what have you. But those are the three simple ones that I, I work based on bowel movements because that's one of the side effects of using magnesium. And you don't want your patient who's going to benefit from magnesium from a pain standpoint, from a stress standpoint, right. from a sleep standpoint. You don't want them to miss out on the benefit because they got hit with the side effect too soon. So you want to start with a low dose, like a magnesium aspartate one at night, 100 milligrams. And then I tell them, increase it up to bowel tolerance. Because your body will let you know when you're on too much, you'll start having really loose stools. Sometimes we have to educate patients. It's okay to have a stool that's a little bit more like a soft serve ice cream kind of thing (laughs) than instead of, and we got to talk about poop because it's about health. No, absolutely. It's so important. It's so important. I mean, that's how we take the garbage out. You know, we don't want the garbage inside of us. I mean, the the liver has worked so hard to get rid of these toxins. And if we let our stool sit in our colon, our body's going to reabsorb those toxins. So go ahead and move them all out, right? So magnesium citrate can help you with that or magnesium aspartate or glycinate. So always magnesium's key, vitamin D's key. Omega-3s, the research on omega-3s, particularly EPA, but both of them because EPA turns into DHA. They, right. they interconvert. But the reason that I push the EPA is go back to the word what supplement means. Supplements means adding something to the diet that we can't get from the diet. There's plenty of DHA in eggs. So when people eat a lot of eggs, they're going to have a beautiful DHA. Most of the seafood that we eat is going to be high in DHA and a little lower in the EPA. The exception is herring. So if you meet someone who just loves herring and eats herring quite a bit, they're probably going to have a beautiful EPA. But if you look at the amount of EPA versus DHA in salmon, for example, or um, even tuna, you're always going to see more DHA. You yeah. follow me? Yes. So when you're thinking about supplementing, even somebody who loves fish and somebody who eats eggs, you're thinking, I, I'm probably going to need to give them either a straight high EPA or an EPA that's somewhat higher than DHA. So if I have a patient that says, I eat fish, I eat eggs, um, then I would give them maybe an EPA three to one or a two to one. Does that make sense? Because I want yeah. that anti-inflammatory. This is very fascinating stuff. And yeah. we, we've, touched, we've touched on pain. We've touched on a lot of things like this. One question that I have is stress-related because I think one of the things that I'm sure every American deals with is stress. And, you know, instead of pumping the system with benzodiazepines or, or you, know, you know, Zoloft or things like that, what would you do if someone went to you uh, with chronic stress, anxiety? What are some things, what are some methods that you would do um, or advise for that patient? Well, one of the first things that I would do is, uh, in a history standpoint, is find out what is, you know, removing stressors from the environment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we want to jump right into giving a supplement, but that's like, you know, mopping up the floor instead of turning the faucet off. Yeah, I mean, we have to find out why yeah. the faucet's going, right? So sometimes that means 
there are certain people in our life that we need to move away from that may mean adjusting our work schedule. It may mean that we have to create in our schedule that time we were talking again about sort of this, it's almost like a brainless repetitive movement. I hate to call it that, but that's when we can meditate, right? I mean, when you're meditating, we've got to either do meditation or do something that's like walking or something calm, something that calms the individual. And that has to become as important as their work schedule. I mean, it really does. So removing ourselves from stress. And I put some people that get really um, uh, uh, wrapped up with the news. I put them on a media fast. I'm like, you just have to turn the news off. You got to <laughs> get rid of the newspaper. You need to turn off the internet. Well, it's you need funny to just- you say that. You know, I, I we, we don't watch the news in my house. It's literally banned. <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. I, I don't even read the newspaper. And, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, we're my, my wife and I both, we're not on any social media where we don't engage in any of this stuff. And since we stopped, there is a incredible, measurable quality of life increase and <laughs> focus and relaxation. And I, I can't even, I put it this way. I don't know enough people that do what we do. So I have nothing to compare it to. But I will tell you, it, it, I cannot believe that this isn't something like that isn't a major treatment for stress. I mean, that, that environment is toxic as it gets. Oh, you know it. Mm-hmm. So lifestyle ah. change is really a... It, it, right. I mean, that's, yeah. but, but that's what stress is, right? When you, you know, you stress... Right. It stresses to, to me is the cause of every disease, you know, yeah. and, and, and it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? There's things that obviously they're going on in your system physically that you can, you know, work on, you know, when it comes to the gut, when it comes to the brain and, you know, all different as- avenues that will help in return reduce stress based on those things lowering. Um, but also, the, the, you know, again, if going to the root cause of it right away, I think the key thing is exactly what Elizabeth just said is that figure out the environment that's causing you stress and get rid of it. <laughs> Very yeah, simple. Absolutely. I mean, think about this for a minute. You know, if, if we say that all that negative energy is like being chased by a tiger, can you imagine being in your tribe? You're with your tribe. Wait, let's go a hundred thousand years ago. Right, 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 right. You're in your tribe. And then let's say your, your, your best friend in the tribe goes, Hey man, let's just go wander into a tiger pack. Yeah, let's go do that. Let's go. Let's volitionally go walk over to the middle of a lion's pride. You know, right, right. that's what we do when we turn yeah, the news on. That's right. right. You know, and I want to say one more thing about that is because I've seen this more and more, and it's kind of been a, a big opening, uh, eye-opening uh, thing for me. Is a lot of patients are not digesting their food well. Yeah. They're watching the news while they're eating. Hmm. You can't do that. You can't do that. You're stressed out. Do you really think that your body's going to trip that vagus nerve, that parasympathetic nerve, to release acid and digestive juices so you can digest your food? Oh, hell no. It's going to end up being, that's going to shut down because we think we're running from the tiger, which is the news. And now we're going to get indigestion. And then that that lower amount of acid brings us full circle back to probably producing a dysbiosis and maybe even small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. That's amazing. Yeah, so there you see it. It's an amazing correlation between yeah. then and now and how it's, it's mind-blowing. It really is. Yeah, it, it's, it's all. So this is so fascinating because this all brings us full circle back into what exactly functional medicine is, right? And mm-hmm. how it views all of these things. You know, one of the things that I do want to ask you about is I know you have your own practice. And I know that, you know, in this practice, you guys really are focused towards functional medicine. So in terms of, you know, moving your regular MD practice to one that is more functional medicine oriented, right? So like, can you explain a little bit about that? I don't think there's many doctors that understand how they would even, even if they became a functional medicine practitioner, you know, uh, through the Institute or, or, or anything else. I don't think a lot of them really understand what the application would be from many different angles, from a, you know, uh, we've obviously discussed about, you know, obviously the, the purpose of functional medicine and looking at the root cause, but, you know, the, the, the business end of it, the understanding on how to apply it to the traditional, you know, private practice. Can you just talk a little bit about how you were able to do that and how, you know, what that's all about? 
Well, uh, I was in a unique situation in that I came in and shadowed one day a week with someone who had an integrative practice and had dabbled in functional medicine. And she encouraged me at the time to become certified in, fun in acupuncture, which I did, and then to also look into functional medicine. And she was pushing me toward that more than integrative medicine because she felt that functional medicine was more biochemistry-based, more research-based. Um, and, and when I started learning about it, I was hooked. I was like, I love the biochemistry I love the research base of it and the personalization and the mechanisms, you know, so I was just, I knew I wanted to do functional medicine. So I worked with her one day a week and learned a lot from her. And then once she, uh, I knew enough, I came in and joined her. And I think this is a great way to do it. Hmm. So I would see some of her follow-up patients. I would sit in on her new patients. So it meant that I wasn't making much money. And I only did this for about six to nine months, okay? Um, so it was a bit of a luxury in my case. Now, if you did sort of the same thing, what I have recommended to lots of uh, physicians that I've mentored is in your practice, if you can pull away one day a week, do one day a week of functional medicine while you're training. You don't have to be an expert in functional medicine to start to apply some of the principles. I wouldn't call myself a certified functional medicine practitioner or an expert until I had done it for some time, but you can certainly tell people we're going to use a functional medicine approach with some of the basics that we teach you at IFM. Now, that's the Institute for Functional Medicine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So once you do it a day a week and then you start to go to two days a week and then you it, 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 you will start to build a following. And when that happens, you'll start to get busier and busier and busier. So I want to tell you two things about that. Number one, I never advertised, but what I taught everybody who worked with us and what I sort of taught the team that we were, let's take really good care of the person in front of us. Mm. We're not real busy right now. We can do extra research. Let's learn everything we can. Let's let our first patients teach us everything we know. And let's do our very best with our first patients. Those patients will tell other people pretty soon you're going to get super busy. And that is what eventually happened. And I tell a lot of uh, young functional medicine practitioners, enjoy this time when you're not busy because this will allow you to set up uh, sort of all the things that you learn. You can. I don't like the term protocol, but you could set up sort of a checklist of things sure. you want to check on certain patients. But I don't. I never like protocols. Protocols make things easy for me, but it, it it sort of divorces me from the very spirit of functional medicine, which is personalizing and using a precise technique for each person based on their history and their lab results. So uh, somewhat of a protocol with with lots of variation depending on the individual. So those are the two things: is you know shadow someone for a period of time until you start to build. To following now i use a cash practice i was going to ask work, you that right, yeah right, so okay. mine is mine is cash and i bill like an attorney um i was thinking about being an attorney at one time in my life and i <laughs> thought they really do it smart so what is and it a yearly out, fee yeah. or, or 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 per 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 patient per time they come or, or is it so like, it, it's an know? hourly rate so okay. the first appointment is uh you know going to be a more expensive appointment because sure. it will include time I do include time reviewing all the literature, re reviewing their history and reviewing um, lab work that they send to me ahead of time. I don't charge for that. Um, and so now some practitioners may need to charge for that because if that starts to get really extensive, you sure. know, then you may have to do a review charge. But ours is typically cash. And then what's beautiful about that and then very fair about it is if I have an individual who really wants me to review some chart, review some articles they've read or tell me about a book or, you know, they have things that want me to do above and beyond a regular appointment. I don't mind doing it, but they have to, you know, compensate me for the time. And it works out well. I mean, I have patients and I always tell people, you know, if you, if the fees are too expensive, then what you can do is bring in your questions really organized. I'll go as fast as I can and we can uh, do five and 10 minute appointments. It's fine for patients that want longer appointments, you know, they'll pay a little bit more. So it allows even patients on a budget to still see a functional medicine practitioner. Right, and this gets some understanding. Right, and what I'm hoping for is eventually if uh, functional medicine practitioners can continue, and the Cleveland Clinic is doing a lot of this, by the way, with their Institute yeah. for Functional Medicine they have there, um, their Center for Functional Medicine there, if we could start showing, which they've already begun doing, by the way, that there is a cost savings and a benefit, significant outcome benefit to individuals using a functional medicine approach, eventually our hope is that insurance companies will pay for it. But right now, it's there's none of us could really make a very good living and much of a living at all if, for example, I spend an hour and a half to maybe two hours reviewing a patient's history and talking to them and really getting to know them and getting them to trust me and learning everything I can about them. And then I'm going to get paid, you know, 
$130 from the insurance company for that amount of time. Right. And you just can't do it right now. But, but, but let's say you're in the insurance industry and you want to use insurance. You want to, you can, it just means that your functional medicine approach is going to be, instead of having one big appointment, might set that up into several little appointments, you know, follow up appointments that are a little bit more frequent for patients. So you can certainly do it that way. So, right. So, so uh, uh, by the way, those are phenomenal insights and thank you. And I think that's going to be really, really helpful. You know, one of the things that I, 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 I do have a little bone to pick with the Cleveland Clinic yeah. <laughs> a, a little bit yeah. on no, is, okay. is, 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 you know, is, is, you know, so here is somebody like you. I'm talking to you, and here is a business like ours and what we do. And we have physicians, and we have nutritionists, and we have functional medicine practitioners that work with us as well. You know, on, on our in our company, and, and you know, they're all employees or partners, or in, they all have involvement, and it's part of our approach. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I love that you keep talking about is the one-on-one personal long-term aspect of sustainability after finding the root cause. And Mm -hmm. one of the issues that I have with what I think is going on is, you know, places like the Cleveland Clinic, and I don't know if this is due to the regulations or whatever it may be in insurance. You know, I, I don't know much about that world. However, you know, a lot of this stuff is done in short spurts, 10-week, uh, you know, protocols, and they're usually done in groups. And, you know, to me, that's still a very traditional medical way of trying to fit functional medicine in, and it's still not really stepping outside the box. You see, mm-hmm. the, it, it, the, the, the root of this is individual individualization, right? The mm-hmm. root of this is really taking the time with that patient. And right now, unfortunately, for people like yourself and myself and and people that work with us and for us, you know, that time is money. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 that's just what's so. So, you know, I think we're still a little ways away from being able to figure out the proper context to present to insurance companies, mm-hmm. to be able to activate their mindset the right way, to be able to look at things and provide a better care, you know, that will be beneficial for them financially as well as the individual personally. And I'm going to step out on a limb a little bit. I just had, had this little inspiration of what you were saying about is we have to start moving. And this is going to be a little bit political in a way, maybe yeah. um, moving away from the patient as the victim, the helpless entity. That's exactly so right. we've got to do that because I call that adult abuse. I think when you do everything for an adult, it's literally a form of abuse because you're, what are you doing? You're making them childlike, right? I mean, people that, that, and that's why every time a patient gets better, I try to be very, very, you know, uh, cognizant to let them know you did this. You had the courage to come to a functional medicine doctor. You're the one that changed your diet. You're the one that started walking 10 minutes a day. You're the one that started taking supplements regularly. You're the one that did this. And it's your body that's powerful. It's not me. It's you. And always letting them see the power that they have. That's so important. And, but it's not just power. What, what you've heard many times in the movies is with power comes responsibility. (laughs) So as, as right. So as patients, they have to understand that they are now adults and that they have to make adult choices. And so it would be beautiful. And you know, and this is just an idea is that when the insurance companies, um, let's just assume eventually they're going to cover functional medicine, that there's a little bit of impetus and a little bit of pressure on the patient to actually stay compliant. Because what the insurance company is saying, I'm betting on the functional medicine approach, but the weakest leak of the chain could be the individual. And I think that's a big reason why uh, insurance companies, I hate to say it, are not real sure about lifestyle medicine because they know so many patients have have become dependent patients. And and they have to be patients that almost are signing up to say, yeah, I want you to pay for my functional medicine care. And I'm willing to put both hands, both feet in to try to do what this practitioner asked me to do. Because see, then you're going to get the outcomes. You're going to see faster outcomes. You're going to see better outcomes. I guarantee you ask any functional medicine practitioner that and I hate having to say it, but the patients that are compliant have their outcomes. And so maybe it will be an alliance between the insurance company and the individual. Yes, we'll pay 
but there's that you stay compliant with technology. That's a proper use of technology. Technology now can track a lot of things that we do. It can track our sleep. It can track what we eat. We track our nutrients. I mean, I can look at lab work when they come in and I look at them and they say, I'm going to go ahead and tell you because the labs tell me what they've been doing. You know, I, I can look at them and say, when did you add cream and sugar back? You know, when yeah. did you start eating wheat back? I can tell most of the time just by looking at labs. And so, I mean, I know that's a little scary to think no, of, no, but we've got to be grown up about health now. Absolutely. And, you know, it all comes back again full circle and assuming responsibility to on the individual and, and taking the proper steps. Now, uh, Elizabeth, before, I mean, we can sit here and this is so fascinating and you're just such a fascinating <laughs> individual and talk about this for hours. Um, and I would love to have you back and do a 2.0 version of this because there's still so sure. much that I'd love to, you know, discuss and, and, and go over with you. Um, but, you know, as, as we wrap this up, I just want to know, you know, if, if somebody wants to look for you or, you know, they're looking to talk to you or hire you for your services, how would they find you and, and, and where would they go? Can you just give us a little bit about, you know, where somebody might find you and, and, and how they get in contact with you? Okay. So um, we have a practice called Atlanta Functional Medicine. We're located just north of the city in Alpharetta, beautiful Alpharetta. And um, we have patients from all over the states that come to see us. So it is possible to do that. Once a patient comes to see us from out of state, and after I've done a physical exam, I can uh, do phone consults with them. So we have a lot of patients that will come visit relatives or come visit Atlanta area for friends and see us at that time. We have patients out of state sometimes as well. Um, and we have three practitioners. One of them is a family practice doctor who's fully, all the practitioners are certified in functional medicine. And what that means is that they went to IFM, they completed all the courses and they took an exam, passed that exam with a enough score that their peers felt they could be certified and they presented a case to the peers in functional medicine. And, and that case was deemed, uh, uh, considered to be adequate to be considered, a, you know, functional medicine, well-trained. So I, I think that's very important in a practice to see that we're not just calling ourselves functional medicine practitioners, but we're actually certified. And then if you, there are five, well, there's actually six principles of functional medicine. And if you ever want to know if a practitioner is really practicing functional medicine, you want to look at those six principles and see that a practitioner is actually uh, practicing. And one of them is preservation of observe. It's uh, biochemical individuality is another one. Um, making sure that the patient is, that the care is patient-centered, not disease-centered. And if you go to the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is ifm.org, you can learn more about functional certified functional practitioner does. Beware of uh, practitioners that just throw a lot of supplements at you. I mean, we need to get this you know, a lot of that it worries me as a functional medicine practitioner that I don't want the reputation of being someone that just sells a lot of supplements. It needs to be very carefully done, very um, thoughtful and individualized to the individual. And I think when you need a practitioner like at our practice or at another practice and they treat you that way, you're going to be in really good hands. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, uh, this is so fascinating and, and, and I really want to thank you for, uh, you know, coming on board. Um, I know we had some technical difficulties and hopefully there, everything worked its way out through and, you know, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure to, you know, put this together as best as we can for our audience and, and, and get everything set up correctly. This was truly a pleasure, Elizabeth, to have you on and, you know, I would love to, you know, definitely. I think there's a lot we can collaborate together, um, especially on the telemedicine standpoint, for, you know, with one another, mm -hmm. because we're in New York and you're in Georgia. But, you know, I just wanted to really thank you for, you know, just doing what you're doing. And, you know, really, w more and more people like you are needed in order to be able to change the surface of what we're doing in medicine and wellness as a whole. Um, so thank you so much for coming on this show um it really has been a pleasure talking with you thank you so and, much and uh we you know we're looking forward to having you again absolutely i appreciate it just let me know thanks elizabeth thank have a thank wonderful you. day okay. bye all right